Manny. What are you having for lunch? I don't know. I had a savory waffle from Bites and Bowls for breakfast. It was so satisfying. Yeah, I heard they have great food at Bites and Bowls. I'm going to order a sandwich and a salad from there. Great. Order me a smoothie, please. Of course. Whether you're looking for breakfast or lunch, come to Bites and Bowls, a fun Latin-owned eatery in East Springdale. Hey, everyone. This is episode 109 of the District Food Podcast. My name is Slappy, uh, this episode at least. And joining us today, we have a cool tour guide from the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs, Belladonna. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks. Great to be here. And you have such a cool background. I was talking to you about it before we began. Um, I got here a little bit late to set up today, so I managed to put like a jack-o'-lantern and a scary little skull back there, but you beat me. You have like the lighting going on. You have a legit jack-o'-lantern behind you. How long did that take to set up? Well, you know, believe it or not, the room actually looks like this most of the time, but uh, I did I did uh, throw the jack-o'-lantern in there last second. That's so cool. My, my husband records in this space a lot of the time, so it's all ready most of the time. Okay. And how long have you been with the Crescent Hotel? I have been with them since February of 2019. Okay. So yeah. um, throughout those throughout those times, have you personally experienced anything paranormal within, within that time? I have. I've had a handful of experiences. Um, They've all been when I was alone, <laughs> which seems to be the way for a lot of people. Um, sort of, there's this idea that you're more likely to have a paranormal experience when all of your senses are open and available. So <laughs> it usually happens when I'm alone trying to close things up very late at night. Um, I've smelled the sweet cherry pipe tobacco throughout the hotel that is attributed to one of our spirits that was the a resident doctor when the hotel was a private club in the very beginning. Um, so I've smelled that in a few different places. I've actually had an experience with the elevator where the elevator door o opened and I had a big wall of cold air come mm. rush over me, which I was really not expecting because it was the middle of the summer <laughs> and the elevator is not air conditioned. <laughs> so that was pretty shocking. Um, there was one evening where I actually slept in the hotel and it was not part of my plan initially, but they used the tour guides for um, something called ESP weekend. It takes place in January. It stands for Eureka Springs Paranormal. And yeah. it's like where we have paranormal investigators come and they do talks and they bring all their equipment and they investigate all of the hotel rooms that we talk about on the tour that are considered to be the more haunted rooms. So uh, the weather was very bad, and so they allowed me to stay at the hotel one night rather than drive home where it was unsafe. And so they put me up in a room on the fourth floor. It was room 424. And there's nothing very special about the room except that it has a very significant gap under the door and the floor sort of does this little like swoopy thing into the hallway which I think is for ventilation or something like that. So they leave the lights on in the hallway all night long. So it's very easy to look into the hall from that room but not to look up into the room. Mm -hmm. So it was about 4am and I was just starting to doze off because we do this investigation stuff really late at night and I heard the sound of Okay. 
you kind of cut off there for a little bit, Belladonna. Which is really, which is really creepy when you think about it, because you kind of cut off right when you were about to tell your story. <laughs> oh, I don't know where <laughs> where we left off, but you, you cut off right when you when you were saying that uh, there was um, the, the the door had that little space in between, and then right when you were about to go into what you were saying, you cut off. Okay, um, so the space under the door has a significant gap, and the the floor sort of swoops down into the hallway which I think is for ventilation, and they leave the lights on in the hallway all night long. So it's easy to look out into the hall, but not to look into the room. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was starting to go to sleep, it was about four in the morning, and I heard somebody put their key into my lock, like trying to open the door. So I panicked, and I sat up, and I looked at the space under the door, knowing that if someone was standing there, I would be able to see their feet. And I couldn't see anything except the little... Uh, flippy do thing that engages when you put the key in yeah. was rattling back and forth for a matter of seconds and then it stopped no. and nothing else happened but I did sit there for a pretty long time like looking at that space under the door like <laughs> uh, are we are you coming in are you already in here what's the deal do you guys so, care about those kind of things I, I don't I actually walk in it because I haven't really experienced it but some people don't want to encounter anything like that it was just shocking I guess I would say I, the experiences I've had at the hotel were not upsetting. Mm. I wasn't like terrified. I was just surprised. And how do you make that transition from wherever job you were at before to being in the most haunted hotel in the country? Well, <laughs> I moved here about three years ago from California and I had been working at Knott's Berry Farm as a scenic painter that place is haunted too <laughs> so it was not that strange a transition actually to go from one entertainment thing to another and to you brought some ghosts from over there to over here yeah quite possibly weird stuff used to happen there all the time in what part of california i moved here from southern california uh most recently but i'm from northern california yeah, we have this this trend for some reason in this podcast where we have a lot of people that we interview that came from California. Because I, I'm from Salinas, California. That's where I was born. Okay. Uh, and then I came over here in 2002. So uh, we tend to have so many guests that, like, for some reason leave California and end up here. Um, but yeah. I think it's pretty cool that you made that transition from an artistic place to another artistic place, uh, and this time to like the most spookiest hotel in the country. And you've been there for a little bit over two years. Um, let's talk a little bit about the history. You know, it wasn't, I know that you know that, but the people that are listening might not know that it wasn't always in hotel, right? Yeah, so the hotel at this point is 135 years old and it's been a handful of different things. When it was first built in 1886, it was the most luxurious establishment west of the Mississippi. Wow. It cost $294,000 to build during a time period when $50,000 was considered luxury. So it had all of the modern amenities when it first opened. It had a hydraulic elevator. It had electricity. It had uh, Edison electric lights, its own private orchestra. It had a stable for 100 horses. It was on 27 acres. And it was a playground for the Victorian 1%. And for the first 15 years of its lifetime, it was a private club. So 
even if you were very wealthy and well-known, you still had to be invited to come and stay. And when people would stay at the hotel at that time, they would come for like months, you know, uh, and they would bring their family, they would bring their servants, they would do the whole deal. So it remained that way until the early 1900s. Then it was leased out to the Frisco Railroad and they were using it as like a commuter hotel. It was still considered luxurious, but it was for travelers going back and forth to Chicago. And that was really great during the nice months of the year, but during the poor months of the year, um, you know, winter, uh, winter's pretty long <laughs> in Arkansas. Yeah. The rich people do not vacation here in the winter because we don't have ski slopes. So yeah. what they ended up doing from 1908 until 1934 is during the cold months of the year, we had the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Ladies. And it was for some of the wealthiest young girls in America. They actually got a four-year education. They had uh, a large arts program sort of focusing on music. Uh, so that happened and was functioning well until the Great Depression. And then the whole town had to shut down at that point because it's all tourism, yeah. right? And people don't have money, none of that can function. So when everything changed, for the place and has sort of the darkest period of history was in the late 1930s. In 1937, it was purchased by a charlatan named Norman Baker. And a little he, weird, that guy, right? What's that? A little weird, that guy, right? He was intelligent uh, to like a scary level, um, a very manipulative person. He used to be a magician and mind reader in vaudeville. He was a pioneer of talk radio, he was an inventor, and he opened a fake cancer hospital at the Crescent Hotel, which functioned for 22 months before it was shut down by the FBI. Isn't that crazy that it can function for that long? It's well, and it wasn't his first hospital either, it was his yeah. third hospital, and they all sort of functioned for only a couple of years. So can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the treatment that he was offering? Yeah, so the, the hospital was completely alternative medicine. And what he was using primarily was something that was called secret formula number five, which was an injectable formula. He claimed to be the non-surgical cure for cancer. And the injection was made up of ground watermelon seeds, corn silk, clover, water, glycerin, peppermint, and traces of carbolic acid. And the patients were receiving these injections into their sites of cancer or as close as they could get, and for some of them up to seven times a day. So it would have been a fairly uncomfortable treatment, but because it was only alternative medicines offered, the other half of their treatment was mental therapy, which was like the power of positive thinking yeah. kind of thing. So how how does he get people to believe in this, in this uh, possible cure for cancer? Uh, I know back then there wasn't social media, so you couldn't just post about it, right? Well, he was a pioneer of talk radio, mm. and his first radio station in Muscatine, Iowa, could be heard as far as Iowa and Illinois, but mm. his second radio station from Nuevo Laredo could be heard as far as Alaska. So he oh, was okay. using the radio to promote um, his cancer hospital and all of his other businesses. He had a whole bunch of other businesses as well. The 
treatment he was using already had a reputation. Uh, he stole it, <laughs> basically, and started to use it and say that it was the new and improved version of the treatment. So uh, he did like a fake drug trial mm. for it. He heard about a Dr. Charles Ozias in Kansas City that was using this treatment. And so what he did was he created a frenzy on his radio station where he had folks write in and he was gonna choose five cancer patients and he was gonna send them to Dr. Charles free of charge and report back on how they did. And he did this reporting for over a year, but in the records we found, we know that in the first six months, one of those cancer patients was dead and within a year they all had died, but he was saying they were all alive and well. Oh. So like building this whole backstory to be able to show people, oh yeah. You and know, you can kind of get away with that back then, right? Because I mean, the well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. something happens, something will be recorded, it'll be posted on social media right away. But back then, I mean, how are people going to know, especially if he's running propaganda on that radio? Well, and not only that, he was like a multimillionaire because he had invented this invention called the Tangly Calliophone. It's like this little tiny pipe organ that plays like circus music. It's a, a conversion on a calliope, which I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but they were huge and they were powered by steam and they had a tendency to overheat and explode. So Norman made a conversion. So this one's small enough to fat, fit on like the back of a flatbed truck to be able to go around to like attract people to your business or your fairgrounds or whatever. And it's powered by electricity and compressed air. And he made a million and a half dollars off that invention in the 1920s. So he had a lot of financial backing for his interests, which is another thing people are like, oh, he's, he's powerful. He's well-known, he's rich. So he obviously knows what he's doing. If yeah. He's all his money. Uh, right. Even though so, he had no medical background at all. <laughs> did, was there ever any kind of, um, like, did he ever say exactly why he was doing this whole cancer treatment thing like was it to make more money was it to be more influential or there was a quote at some point that i think was brought up in his court case in the 40s that when he was opening the cancer hospital in eureka springs that he said he could make a sucker out of a million people in a year or something like that so he was power driven mm -hmm. I wish I remembered the quote exactly. That was like a horrible. Yeah, I heard something phrase. like that. So something generally like that, that, that he was making a sucker out of the general public. So it was all so, about feeding his ego then? Well, Basically. it was about money, mostly, and ego. He had no interest in torturing people. He had no interest in killing people. He wasn't like a mad scientist. He wasn't experimenting on people. He was trying to separate them from their money and get them out of there. Okay. So, um, when he's running this hospital, is this before, during, or after he ran for governor? He ran for governor in 1932, and okay. he ran the cancer hospital from 1937 to 1939. Okay. So, at this time, he already had, like, a bell bid for governor. He, he, he tried to run for governor of Iowa, and then he tried to run for senator, I think, in 1936, and he had a very poor turnout for both things Man. but it kept so, him in the public eye so did he did he end up in prison after those 22 months 
He did. So he got arrested, um, and in 1941, he went away to the Leavenworth Penitentiary on seven counts of mail fraud, <laughs> of all things. And it was because he was mailing out brochures with guarantees that he could cure you of cancer without x-rays, without surgery, without radium. And that variety of guarantees is illegal <laughs> when you can't back it up. And so he was supposed to serve four years in jail, but he was doing well, so they were gonna let him out. And then he punched the prison doctor for whatever reason. <laughs> so they decided that he needed to be in there for three years and three months and he paid a $4,000 fine, but they estimate he made $4 million on his three cancer wow. hospitals over the 10 year span. And back then that would be even more money. Well, today I had somebody tell me it, it's worth about 68 to $70 million. Wow. Wow, so after uh, Norman Baker, um, after his attempt for that cancer hospital is over, uh, what happens next with the location? So after that happened, it was actually empty for quite a long time. It was still under the ownership of Norman's girlfriend <laughs> because when he got into jail, he owed some people some money and he didn't want anyone to be able to access that money. He definitely didn't want the government to be able to take the money so he put all of his assets and all of his businesses into his girlfriend's name, Thelma Yaunt, and then they had sort of a falling out while he was in jail. She stopped writing. So when he got out, he went looking for her, and she had married the son of a senator in Texas. So he lost everything he'd put in her name. So when the hotel sold in 1946, uh, he only got a fraction of that money. And it sold to four... Chicago businessmen that did a lot of renovations on it and it became a very popular resort they were doing these little like travel packages where like if you stayed there you could do other things in the area as well but part of the popularity of it and the Basin Park Hotel is that these guys had ties with the Chicago mob so they had a lot of people involved in that coming to Eureka Springs to have a good time so that was part of the popularity there. And it remained uh, in their ownership until the late 60s. At that point, only one of those Chicago guys was still alive. His name was uh, Dwight Nichols. And there was a terrible fire in the building in 1967. It was an electrical fire that began in the elevator. So it did a whole lot of damage to the fifth floor penthouses, the fourth floor, uh, the general manager was saying actually the damage went all the way down to like the second floor but it was sort of like localized so when the insurance payout came uh dwight decided to invest rather than just like cut his losses but the investment didn't go very far so all it did was replace the elevator and put a temporary roof on the building which they used for 30 years so it needed a lot and it's been owned by several different people over many different decades but they could only invest so much into it to try to fix it up so they were using it as it was still and there were time periods where the hotel was owned but empty mm. it got repossessed by the bank in the late 1980s as well so like there are some people we've talked to in town that 
in the times where it was empty, they used to come and play in the hotel as kids. Well, because like, I guess, you know, there were ways in and out of it. Yeah. And after the cancer hospital, people were like breaking in and stealing, you know, whatever was in there. So it's had some pretty low times, but our current owners that purchased it in 1997, Marty and Elise Rennick, have done a massive amount of renovations on it. They call it the second golden age of the Crescent Hotel. So when, uh, like at what point does it start being um, categorized as a haunted hotel? So <laughs> it's funny you ask that. So most of the owners made it completely off limits for the staff to discuss any of the paranormal things that took place. Uh, they were really worried for their business that it would scare people away, that they would not be interested, they wouldn't feel safe. So the first sort of story that we hear about uh, any of this getting out took place in the 70s. One of the owners at that point had a paranormal experience where the building was closed for renovations and workers were coming in and out of the front doors but the owner saw a guy in full Victorian garb come walking in the front doors and make a beeline for the staircase, the main staircase on the south side of the building. So he started to follow him and ask him who he was and what he was doing there. And he followed the guy up to the second floor. And he said at that point, the guy disappeared, never acknowledged him, but he felt something push him in the opposite direction once he reached the second floor so he had to take a couple of stairs back to like catch his balance and he gave an interview to what he thought and this is a story that i've heard through several people that he gave an interview to what he thought was a christian science magazine hmm. and this story got published in the national Enquirer, <laughs> and he was really worried that that was going to be the end of it um you know that people would be like oh god it's haunted don't go there um but it sort of just trickled off like people stopped talking about it and it wasn't until the late 1990s when the Renix purchased the property that they really embraced the fact that the hotel has paranormal activity they wanted people to know about it they you know were marketing it they first started to give ghost tours in 1999 so that's when it first really became okay <laughs> for all of it to be public. So how cool is it to work in a place like that where, you know, people from all across the country, maybe from around the world, you know, come to, to spend some time there to see if they can witness any kind of paranormal activity. Uh, seeing it's, so many videos. It's really fun. Good. It's fun um, having conversations with people and finding out why they've come. Um, some people are coming because they got married at the hotel 50 mm. years ago and they're there for their you know anniversary some yeah. people come because it was a place that was very significant in the life of a loved one that's passed and they want to come and see if they can reconnect mm. a lot of people are just hoping to see something yeah. um but you're more commonly going to capture something in a photograph than to see something with the naked eye that's the most common thing. And people show me photos that I can't explain all yeah. of the time. Um, a lot of things captured in the mirrors in the hotel, um, the reflection of another person in the mirror or just part of a person, maybe just a head. Maybe Who are some of the, of the common like uh, seeing ghosts around the hotel? 
So the ones that we talk about on the tour are from many different decades. The one that inhabits room 218, which is considered to be the most haunted room in the building, his name is Michael, and he was an Irish stonemason that helped to build the hotel in the 1880s. He uh, died during the construction of the hotel, so we think he's been there the longest. And what happened was he was up at the top of the building working, and he noticed a beautiful young lady come walking onto the grounds. So he was yelling down, trying to get her attention, and he slipped and fell through the building, landing on a beam that is part of room 218. Okay. And Michael is known as a poltergeist, and uh, the funny thing about the word poltergeist is we're all like, ooh, that's a scary word. It translates into English as noisy ghost. Hmm. <laughs> Which I, I did not know that. <laughs> sort of takes some of the power out of it. Right. But uh, what people experience in that room is not usually seeing him, but him doing things that they can see in the room. So like- Is he the one that goes in the shower? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we used to have a shower curtain on the shower and sometimes the ladies, he loves the ladies. So sometimes the ladies that would use the shower when the shower curtain was on there, they would say the shower curtain would get pulled back on them all like uh, psycho style. And then they get hit with a bunch of cold water which is not a very lovely experience. But they say that when they installed the glass shower doors that are there now, that all stopped. So we like to think that Michael's in full approval of the free view. It's been installed. <laughs> he doesn't have to work for it any longer. But he flips the lights on and off, ties the curtains and towels into knots, unlocks the balcony doors and opens them, plays with the drawers in the room. Uh, I have had people say that they've caught his reflection in the bathroom mirror. I don't know how often that happens. I think the other things happen much more often. Um, he hides personal belongings. So when people go to leave, they have to do quite a bit of searching around the room to find their stuff. So, yeah. And then we have another uh, poltergeist that's on the fourth floor in what is now room 419. Uh, we call her Theodora. We think she was an employee when it was the cancer hospital. There's a lady that's seen outside the door that's would have been the original entrance to this room. And she's middle-aged. She's dressed in 1930s-style clothing, digging through her purse trying to find her keys. And she will actually interact with people if they walk up and try to help her. Um, but inside of the room she's been known to straighten things up if people leave messes out but if she does not appreciate the behavior of the people in the room because she's got old-fashioned values she'll actually pack their bags and like leave them at the door wow so that when they try to get back in their room it's like very obvious that it's time to go now okay. kind of that's, thing. On the, that's on the fourth floor you say right yeah Okay, let me remind myself that so I don't uh, book a room in the fourth floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be, it's a two-room suite at this point, so that would be a lot of space for one person. But it's a, yeah, it's room 419. Okay. Theodore's room. Okay. So, um, are there any children ghosts in the hotel? Yes. So there's, there's one that we know for sure by name. There are, I believe, many other child ghosts there as well. But the one that we talk about on the tour, his name is Brecky, and he was the son of the president of the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Ladies. 
and his wife lived there at the hotel as well. She was mostly doing work to help the Red Cross at the time because it was, was around World War One, And little Brecky was just loved on by his parents and by the college girls that lived there. And he had a very charmed life there, but he ended up dying 10 days after his fourth birthday because of complications of appendicitis. Mm. But it was 1918. So, you know, yeah. probably not a lot of folk, folks pulling, pull, pull, probably not a lot of folks pulling through appendicitis. <laughs> right, nowadays time. we have more medicine and stuff, but man, that's still sad. Yeah, so his mother was devastated when this happened. She actually ended up divorcing her husband and going to France to help with the war effort after World War One. And when she came back, her name is Mary Breckenridge. She's actually a very famous nurse. Okay. And when she when she came back to the States, she had learned how to become a midwife. Mm. And so she started something called the Frontier Nursing Service in rural Kentucky, which helped thousands of people to be able to give childbirth and have raise a healthy child. Okay. It was kind of a strange tie to history <laughs> but yeah little brecky was her motivation to go because she was just so devastated oh, and wanted to be able to help others so um because i remember whenever i went the first time um the tour guide that was taking us around gave us the equipment to be going around and, and seeing if we can sense something yeah some of the tour guides use uh the emf detectors mm -hmm. We used to sell them at the hotel and they don't sell them anymore. So the ones that we have are kind of Frankenstein together from the parts of the ones that have okay. fallen apart. Uh, but EMF detectors read electromagnetic uh, fields. Mm -hmm. And so the theory is that, um, you know, energy cannot be created or destroyed. So mm -hmm. they think that when we leave, when we die, we leave an electromagnetic imprint that can be sometimes detected with this equipment, but the original purpose of the EMF detectors are for contractors looking for electricity in the wall. Yeah. You know, so they don't, you know, cut into a, a wall with live wires in it. So when people use them and they go off in an area that we don't expect to find a strong electromagnetic frequency, that's, they think they might be picking up on a spirit and we encourage people to take photos in that area at that time and see if they can detect anything. Yeah, and I've seen some some pictures on social media of, of some activity people have seen at the hotel, which I think is, is really cool, you know, because a lot of the times uh, you hear these stories, but when you see something, that's kind of when you really start to believe that things can really be happening in a place like this, you know? Well, and that's what a lot of the guests say that come. Uh, a lot of people are sort of open-minded about it and they're like i've just never seen anything i'd like to see something and uh, i feel like a lot of the people that work at the hotel even if they were absolutely skeptical to begin usually we all have something happen that we can't quite explain and then people can sort of decide for themselves if they think wow that was a ghost or like wow that's really weird and i don't want to think about it <laughs> you know but there's definitely at the hotel you know there's the biggest ghost shows national national ghost shows have been oh, yeah. allowed to do investigations yeah the uh ghost adventures came and filmed in january of 2019 
and uh Were you already there? I wasn't working there yet. I, I started working there right after they came. Okay. okay. Um, but I guess what they had to do is they had to pretend like the hotel was closed for maintenance because they mm -hmm. didn't want people to know that the show was filming. Yeah, because I would have known that would have been there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's the thing is everybody would have like shown up. Yeah. So they had to film part of the show with all the power cut to the building. Oh. You know, okay. so they couldn't have other guests staying there. Mm, I did watch that. So episode, I guess actually. I guess I the only people it. that were in the know that they were filming were their crew the ghost tour people that were there at the time and the front desk and maintenance okay. and like everybody else didn't know. Okay. So um, going forward, um, I know, I think it was like two, three years ago, um, they found stuff buried in outside of the hotel, right? Can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so when the people died at the cancer hospital, they would get transported down to the morgue, which is a part of the tour today, which you've seen. Yeah. And while they were down there, they would have autopsies performed by the head doctor. And during the autopsy, he was removing the tumors and putting them into jars with preserving liquid. And those jars either remained down on the basement level as just like a massive storage thing Otherwise, Norman picked out the jars that he liked, and he had them on display in the lobby. Uh, he said they were proofs of his success, which if he was actually curing cancer non-surgically and everyone was living through the situation is kind of a confusing concept. Mm. But uh, the jars lived at the hotel a lot longer than Norman. They were still around in like the late 60s or early 70s, either in the basement or on display occasionally and then they all disappeared. And what the modern day staff was told is that all that stuff had gotten taken to the city dump. And we were like, well, that's lame. <laughs> like, <laughs> why would you not want to keep that? That sounds kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so that is what we had believed had happened to these items until February of 2019. One of our landscapers was at the back left corner of the property and she was trying to level it uh, to put in a compost pile and she broke into this berm and there was glass in it. So she climbed down and started to pull out these bottles. So she called our hotel historian and he came over. And so at first it was the two of them out there digging things up because he knew what it was. He had um, stuff in his research that's actually a, a photo of the bottles and jars from the first cancer hospital that said, we have proofs of our success. So when they started to pull things out of the ground that looked just like this graphic, he knew what we had. So at first they were out there digging the things out and then they were like, yeah, we need to call the police. We need to call hazmat. It needed to be cleared. It was on the news. I remember yeah, seeing like- CNN came, the Smithsonian came, um, the University of Arkansas came and did an archeological dig so if you come to the hotel, there's actually a little preserved area where the dig site happened. Yeah. Um, it's like we've built a little shelter over it with a window so people can look in and see. Basically, there's still stuff there. Mm. Um, the university had planned to come back at some point and maybe excavate some more. But I'm sure that probably because COVID, that everything financially has gotten a little hung up. 
Mm. Um, they took a lot of things for analysis that we're hoping they're going to give us some analysis analysis or the items back. <laughs> so for all the people we'd like to have them. <laughs> for all the people that thought that all this was made up, like legitimately, people came. Pull the police showed up, and legitimately, even the university came to. Yeah. To, you know, which yeah. I think kind of adds more to how um, how all of this, you know, is valid. Yeah, and they found a bunch of bottles that we think are the various stages of that secret formula number five, the injectable formula. So, That's cool. I'm glad. Cool to, I'm glad cool to we, see that stuff in person. Especially if you're working there, you're just kind of like, oh, we're about to get a, a big pool of more people coming in to the. Yeah, to the like we had a huge influx of people for the ghost tour. We actually created a, a second tour that focuses more on Norman and Norman's history mm. and all of that. Um, we call it the expert expanded tour. And okay. only a couple of us do that tour. I'm one of the tour guides that does it. So I think it's fun. the last time that I did a tour, I think it might have been right before they found the, uh, they, they found that and they, dug, and they dug it up and everything. Um, and so I think it'd be exciting to go check it out again. Um, how many uh, tour guides are there at the hotel? That's a great question. <laughs> I feel like we have eight of us okay. right now. We have had like 15 in the past, but okay. right now we have uh, a much smaller group. But everybody's very passionate about giving the tours. Nobody's just phoning it in. We all like care very much about giving a great tour and about the hotel and everybody having a positive experience while they're there. We're not trying to like scare the wits out of anybody. We're just trying to like give you the information so that folks, if they want to do their own investigation, uh, you know, that kind of thing. What we are conjuring the dead during the tour <laughs> or anything like that. I think it's a cool experience because when I went, I mean, like, like you said, got to go to the morgue, got to sit down there for a little bit and chill, which I thought was really cool. And got to go around the entire hotel, you know, and and, and just kind of walk around and, and do our own kind of like uh, paranormal search uh, around the hotel. I think things probably have changed a little bit different now because of the pandemic, maybe. I think that, is it only guests of the hotel and people that are doing the tour are the only ones that are able to kind of go around the hotel, right? Well, it People walk around the hotel all the time. We have restaurants in the hotel, so people are coming okay. for that. People come for the spa. So, uh, I mean, we we encourage patrons of the hotel to be walking around, but I'm sure that there are people that aren't there for anything except to just try to see something. So, and then besides, besides the hotel, y'all have some stuff in the back, right? There's like a church back there, I believe. Is that a church? Yeah, St. Elizabeth's Church is uh, not technically on our property, but you can view it. It's like right there if you're looking out uh, the back side of the hotel, which actually used to be the front of the hotel originally. Okay. So when you see all of our historic photos, it's all of what is today the back. Mm -hmm. And they flipped it when people started to own automobiles. Okay. They wanted to have the parking lot on the same side as the entrance. So all those big grand photos of the back of the hotel is actually the original front. Okay. Um, so today, uh, being in 2021, if you have to give people a reasoning to come to the hotel and visit, 
what would that be? It's beautiful, uh, and Eureka Springs is beautiful, and uh, places like this can only last so long without support. And so I strongly recommend that people come and see it for themselves. That helps us to be able to keep it going, to be able to give people this experience. Because if people are just watching it on TV, and they don't actually come, they don't support the ghost tour, they don't support the hotel, it can only go on for so long. And then it's just a memory, just a photograph. That's that's a really good selling point because it is a very special place. And I do think, you know, having something in our backyard, I live like 45 minutes away from the, from the hotel. It's pretty close, you know, compared yeah. to other people. But people are coming from all, all around the country, you know. People are, are coming from all around the country trying to experience this hotel. And we have it so close. So why not uh, go out there and support uh, and when you're there, you know, support all these other local businesses in Eureka Springs. There's so much to do. Um, and any, every time that we can, whenever we have like a free weekend, we make our way down there. And uh, if it isn't like doing a tour or staying at the hotel, you know, just going outside and visiting it and uh, taking some pictures, posting them on social media and giving the hotel a little bit more, you know, social media exposure, I think goes a yeah. long way as well. Absolutely. We and, appreciate all of it. And how can people, uh, how do they set up the um, to, get, to get a tour of the hotel? Is it just online? Yeah, so there are two different ways to get tickets. If you are a hotel guest, you can actually add a tour onto your room. When you do your booking or while you're in the hotel getting checked in, you can add a tour onto your room, as long as there's availability, of course, because they do sell out. The other way you can get tickets is if you go onto reserveeureka.com, you have to look up Crescent Hotel Ghost Tour because we are not the only tour in town. <laughs> so sometimes people will accidentally get tickets for a different tour and show up at the hotel thinking that's what they got. Crescent Hotel Ghost Tour. Uh, the other tour, which is the expanded tour that gives more about Norman Baker, does all the regular ghost tour stuff, but it does more about his history. That one's called Crescent Hotel Expert Expanded Ghost Tour. Okay, sounds good. Well, I'm probably going to do a tour again soon just because I want to see, you know, what's new. And, and hopefully you're there, Belladonna, that weekend. We can... I'm there a lot, so probably. <laughs> I'll be the one wearing the slappy, <laughs> the slappy Perfect. mask. Perfect, that's how I'll uh, recognize you. Right, and I think probably in the next few days, y'all are probably going to be super busy with everybody that's making their way It down. is very busy. Um, partially because we're at the very top of the mountain and all around the hotel is the historic loop, which all of these beautiful Victorian homes and a lot of people decorate for Halloween and a lot of people open themselves up for trick-or-treating. So it's a huge draw. People bring their kids and bring their families to come and see all of the stuff. And where can people reach you uh, or reach the hotel in case they have any kind of inquiries, any kind of interview inquiries, or they just want to reach out to the hotel in general? They have Y'all have an Instagram, right? And y'all have a Facebook? I know that we have a Facebook. I have no idea if we have an Instagram. I'm so embarrassing. Do, that's actually how I reached out to y'all. So y'all do have okay. an Instagram. <laughs> I, I'm not on social media at all. Okay. So I'm not uh, the best person to ask about all that. I kind of live in, in a, an older time where I'm just good. sort of <laughs> cool. not really in touch with everybody else. But um, 
yeah, I, I would say just post the links that you can find for contacting <laughs> the hotel because I'm not the expert on that kind of thing. Well, Belladonna, thank you for making the time for this interview. We really appreciate you. Um, and I think it's going to help our, our, um, our readers and listeners um, actually, and, and viewers because this will also be broadcasted on our social media pages um, about the history of the hotel and what's going on. I'm excited about going and I know that people that are, that are listening in right now um, are also super excited about um, the tour and the hotel in general. And hopefully, you know, the hotel doesn't close, hopefully but people continue to support it so that it can continue to entertain people and provide a, uh, an escape because I feel that the hotel does that, you know, sometimes you need to get an escape in life and, and just be entertained and, and uh, just try to look out for paranormal things that could be happening all around us. So I'm grateful for you. And I'm also grateful for the hotel for continuing to provide this entertainment here in our, uh, in our state in Arkansas. So thank you for your time. It is a pleasure to do all of that, and it's been a pleasure to be on your podcast, and have a very happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. That's the end of episode 109 with Belladonna from the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. Make sure you visit, and happy Halloween.